This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include A new crypto jacking malware gets onto your Mac when you, ahem, download pirated software. What percentage of users are viewing online media illegally? A new survey provides some answers. You hear a lot about AI performing all sorts of human tricks, like robbing a bank. And does a new user-repairable phone signal a trend in future phone design? Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine. We have an exciting lineup for today's episode. We have this cryptojacking malware, which has been found in some pirated applications for Mac. You know, we always tell people, make sure that when you download an app that you're getting it from an official source. Either get it from the App Store, and again, whether that's on macOS or iOS, iPadOS, whatever platform it is, the App Store is, the generally speaking, just about the safest place that you can get an app. That's not to say that there's never any scam apps or anything like that that can slip past Apple's review process, but it, in general, that's one of the safest places for you to get apps. The second place that that is safe to get apps is from the developer's official website, which, again, you have to be careful because if you're just doing a web search for that developer, you may accidentally end up on some page that is not the developer's website. But in any case, some pirated applications apps that claim to be the full version, for example, of Final Cut Pro, included some malware that engaged in crypto jacking. Now, crypto jacking is when malware attempts to mine for cryptocurrency using your leftover processor cycles that you're not using. Sometimes it's your CPU, your main processor. Sometimes it's your GPU. It's kind of irrelevant when it comes to M1 and M2 series processors, just because it's the whole system on a chip. Apple kind of has integrated CPU and GPU and all that kind of stuff. The short version of this basically don't download pirated software, and then you won't get malware on your computer. (laughs) (laughs) It's really simple, isn't it? It's like, don't drink and drive, and you won't get into accidents. Yeah, yeah, very likely you won't get into accidents. So if you do have malware like this on your computer, of course, if you have the latest Intego software, Virus Barrier can detect and remove any of this malware from your computer. Hopefully, though, nobody has downloaded any pirated software onto your computer. Why would they download pirated software? That's wrong. That's a bad thing to do. Of course. Well, speaking about pirated content, apparently 10% of American adults viewed content illegally in 2012. And this is a survey which was carried out by YouGov. And we don't know the questions that were asked of how people knew that what they were seeing was legal or not, because only 60% of the people said that they were aware that the pirated content was legally available. We were discussing this before the show. You can go to YouTube and you can listen to music or you can see some videos. And you're on YouTube. You don't think there's anything illegal, but a lot of that stuff is pirated. This actually brings up a lot of like interesting conversation points. But yeah, specifically, there were 10% of those surveyed who admitted that they had viewed content illegally. And I think it should be worded that way because 
I imagine, depending on, I don't know exactly how the survey was conducted. I found a couple of articles about this survey, and I didn't see anything specifically saying this was a phone survey or this was an anonymous online survey. But that could have an impact on how people are choosing to respond to a survey. If somebody calls me up on the phone, they've got my phone number. And even if they're saying this is an anonymous survey, I may not necessarily want to tell them, yes, I know I'm pirating stuff because, you know, how do I know that the person on the other end of the call isn't secretly a government agent who's trying to, you know, to use something against me? I would say at least 10% of American adults are probably viewing content illegally. It's probably a larger number than that would be my guess. And there's a certain percentage who are doing this intentionally. So the malware we just talked about, this was found on places like the Pirate Bay, where people were going to download torrented videos and music, etc. But we don't know how many were accidental, such as YouTube. Or should I cite the example of someone I know who has Disney Plus in the States and wanted to watch a certain movie that was not available on Disney Plus in the States, but was on Disney Plus in Canada and used a VPN to access the Canadian Disney Plus to watch the movie? I have heard that that is possible to do, yes. <laughs> Theoretically, if you're paying for the service, and if you were to travel to another country where that content is available, you would be able to access that content using the service that you're paying for. <laughs> So this is one of those awkward gray areas, right? And the same thing with Disney Plus, Netflix, any of these services generally have country-specific licensing, right? This is a very complicated thing because of silly things in the movie and TV industry, but the way things are funded and the existing partnerships that different companies have, it gets very complicated. And so it's kind of understandable that there are these geo-fenced restrictions. So is that pirating as far as like the people who answered the survey? I don't know whether they would have thought of that. If, if somebody had asked me, and if I were that person who had accessed Canadian content from the U.S., then I might not have thought about that and, said, and answered yes to, to that question. It's worth noting that Apple has taken the interesting path to only have content that they've produced on Apple TV+. So... They they own the worldwide rights, and there are really weird licensing deals depending on who's been involved in the production of certain things. For example, a lot of BBC series get shown on Netflix in the US. Uh, others are on BritBox, which is owned by the BBC. Some of them might be on other streaming services. It all depends who's put up the money for the original productions. So one other thing that came out of the survey, specifically 60% of those who admitted that they were watching content illegally said that they were aware that the content was legally available, that there was some legal avenue for them to be able to get that content and they chose piracy anyway. But that that is kind of interesting because then it implies that, again, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how people chose to respond to, to these questions relative to how the questions were asked, but apparently of those 10% who admitted to pirating things, 40% evidently were watching content illegally, but they didn't know that it was legally available. But this brings us back to the question of, do you want to download pirated software? Do you want to go to the websites that contain 
links to pirated movies and TV shows, things like the Pirate Bay and other torrent sites, because these sites are often going to try and get you to download software. One of the things that they try to sell on all these torrent sites now is VPN software. So you'll click on a link and it'll open up a page, say, oh, you need a VPN to protect you when you're downloading this software. In some cases, this might be reliable VPN software, but in others, it might be a scam. One more thing we should mention that, that came out of the survey, those who were viewing content illegally recognized that some of them recognized that it came with risks. Apparently, 37% of those who had illegally downloaded or streamed content reported that their device got infected with malware in the process. So more than a third of those people said, yeah, I know I got malware because of this. So this is a good reminder that even if you're not looking for software online and potentially downloading software illegally, you can still encounter malware when you're searching for video content or music content or other things that you're trying to obtain without paying for it. So just be aware of that. Be very careful about that because often malware does come with some of these downloads. So to segue from downloading video content to the LastPass breach that we've talked about in recent episodes, it turns out that an employee's home computer was hacked and a corporate vault was taken. So a vault is the file that the company had with all their important passwords and credentials and all that. And the vector that was used was really interesting. The employee was using Plex on their home computer and someone exploited a vulnerability with Plex. Now, you can use Plex in two ways. You can use it one, I use it on, I have a Mac mini, I store videos that I've ripped and I use it to stream to my Apple TV. But you can also use Plex to give remote access to your library, to yourself or to other people. And this is one way that some people share pirated content with others through Plex libraries. And apparently there was some sort of a vulnerability in this remote access that allowed the hacker to get in and they install a keylogger. Was that it? Right. It's a little bit unclear how they got from one step to the next. But according to this report, the attacker got into the LastPass employee's home computer through a vulnerability in Plex. Now, by the way, Plex has come out with a statement saying, we are not aware of any unpatched vulnerabilities. And they say that they have been in touch with LastPass and are trying to find out what specific vulnerability might have been exploited to get into this person's home computer. But if this is actually true, that some Plex vulnerability was used to break into this employee's computer, somehow that led to keystroke logging malware or keyloggers being installed on this individual LastPass employee's home computer. Then from there, because this employee was using their home computer to access this corporate vault, then this keystroke logging malware was able to capture the password they were using to log into it and then exfiltrate that data, the, the password to the attacker, who was then able to use that to gain a greater foothold into LastPass. So you can see how like th these things chain together. Somebody was using a vulnerable version of software. Let's say maybe it was an old version of Plex or something that had some known vulnerability. We don't know. They had this exposed also to the public internet, which is kind of a no-no, right? Like you have to be really careful and consider, do I actually want this piece of software to be available to anybody on the internet to be able to find this and potentially log into this? There are ways that you can make that more secure. It's It does require a bit 
bit of technical expertise to do that. And so some people for their own personal convenience might just open up a port in their router and now actually anybody who can, you know, brute force guess the password to log into that service or exploit a known vulnerability may be able to break into your computer through that. So you've got to be really careful. Anytime you're exposing anything intentionally to the internet, you want to make sure that you're doing it in as secure of a way as possible. Plex says that they don't know of any unpatched vulnerabilities, but I can assure you that Plex releases updates to their software frequently, sometimes a couple of times a month, depending on whether you're on the beta update channel or not. So it's very possible that this LastPass thing happened months ago, and Plex is saying, well, there's nothing that's unpatched today, but at whatever point the person got in, well, something had been unpatched at the time. And as you said, maybe the person just didn't update it. Right. And well, we know this took place in August because that's when the initial intrusion into LastPass apparently happened. By the way, if, if you're wondering what we're talking about with LastPass, we have a previous episode where we covered this this whole thing, the, the, the whole story with LastPass and, and how they were compromised. LastPass, of course, is a password managing program that at this point we don't recommend you using anymore. It's probably better to move on to a different password manager. If you already have a LastPass vault, it's a good idea to move to a newer password manager that has better security. I'm personally using Bitwarden. I think that it's probably one of the best out there. Kirk, I know you're using 1Password. These are are both password managers that have a very good reputation and have been around for, for a long time. I'll have links in the show notes to an article on the Intigomac security blog about the LastPass fiasco and to a podcast episode where we discussed it. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how someone broke into a bank account with an AI-generated voice. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intigo has been proudly protecting Mac users for over 25 years. And our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security. Personal Backup, to keep your important files safe from ransomware. And much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Ventura and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. A few years ago, I was using a personal bank account with a bank here in the UK, and they had added a new voice authentication system. And they wanted me to call them up on the phone and say, my voice is my password. And they would record this and they would record my unique voice print. And I didn't trust it. I said, there's no way I'm going to do this. I'll type in my complicated password if I have to. Well, we have an article in Motherboard, how I broke into a bank account with an AI-generated voice and someone used that same tool that we used a couple weeks ago to generate Josh's voice. 
And they had to use a couple of tries, but they were able to break into a bank account and get access to balances, transactions, transfers, etc. This is a bit worrisome because these AI voice tools are all of a sudden extremely powerful and extremely accessible. You don't have to go out of your way to find one. I don't, I would never use a voice password for anything because not only does it not seem reliable to me, but you're talking over a mobile phone. The sound's not going to be good. The microphone's not going to be good. The connection might not be good. It just doesn't seem safe. Right. And it's funny because they actually do say in this Vice article that that was the keyword for this particular bank. My voice is my password. So apparently this is a thing that a lot of banks are doing. And it is something that you should be aware of. My voice should not be my password, especially in today's day and age where it is so easy for people to imitate your voice using artificial intelligence, you know, uh, voice generation software. One of the banks says on its website, your voice print like your fingerprint is unique to you and no one else has a voice just like you. I wonder if AI is going to be able to duplicate fingerprints. I guess that's a little bit extreme. It would have to have a fingerprint model to be able to do that. So that won't happen. But the whole voice thing, it just seems too easy. Yeah, absolutely. This well, so a voice print is completely different from something like a fingerprint. A fingerprint, you can't really spoof that, right? It's it's got to be exact. And a voice print, well, you can come pretty close to imitating somebody's voices, as we heard recently, right? It didn't sound exactly like me, but it's close enough that I absolutely think that it could fool, you know, a, a bank. My voice is my password prompt. Especially if you consider that people like us who are podcasters, there are huge recordings of our voices of hundreds of hours that people can choose. So it's not hard to find the voice. Now, maybe someone who'd never done any public recordings, it might be more difficult to get a voice print from them. You need something clean, not just something from a phone call, I think. Actually, I'm kind of curious about that one, because if you think about it, anybody who's ever had to sit on hold on a phone call knows that audio quality over a phone call is really bad. And, you know, listening to hold music, it doesn't sound very good. It it sounds really terrible, in fact. So the voice quality over a phone call is not great. But if somebody has, you know, recorded your voice through a phone call, I don't know whether it degrades enough that if you were to then use AI based on a phone recording of somebody and then play that back through the phone to the bank. I don't know whether that would be good enough to bypass the the bank's password requirement. I'm not sure, but uh, I would not be surprised if it is possible. To me, it sounds like making a photocopy of a photocopy, but but there are AI tools that can clean up voice recordings. And I use this for one of my podcasts where one of my co-hosts does not have a good microphone, does not know how to use a microphone. So I use this Adobe tool. I upload a file and it gets rid of the room noise and the echo. It's really quite amazing. We're not suggesting that anyone try this, but just don't let your voice be your password, especially now. I'd be even worried about some banks are using a photo type system 
right? I remember when I applied for a bank account a couple of years ago, they had me sit in front of the camera on my computer and turn my head in different directions to take a photo of me. Now, this is just a photo. It's not like Apple's Face ID, which has infrared scanners to, to check depth, right? It was just using photos. I wouldn't want to use that because that could probably be spoofed as well. If a bank is going to use technologies like this, there needs to be multiple layers. And I don't mean just my voice is my password, plus check that the phone number that I'm calling from matches my phone number that the bank has on file, because as we've mentioned before, phone numbers can also be spoofed. So if somebody is able to spoof your phone number and also use AI generated voice, it sounds like very, you know, Tom Cruise spy technology, but this is readily available, easily available to anybody who's willing to, you know, to pay for a service like that or run their own kind of service that does something similar to this. It's not difficult or expensive to pull off an attack like that in today's day and age, unfortunately. I think banks should be at the forefront of safety rather than trying some fancy technology. One of the things they do here, when I moved to the UK, I was very surprised. Most of the banks have a system. They're starting to use two-factor authentication, and my accounts have two-factor. But some of them use a system where you enter your username, your password, then, for example, characters 2, 7, and 10 of your secret word. So you would have had to create a word, select a word, which is your favorite fictional character, your dog's name, whatever, but they only choose three random characters from it. And that's interesting because it's hard to crack that. You can't, there's no dictionary brute force attack to crack that sort of thing. It's kind of funny because to me, from my perspective, that also means that obviously they're storing that special word in plain text, right? So Good point. Um, hopefully you're not using something that you're also using as a password elsewhere <laughs> for that special word, because then that means that the employees of that company will have access to that. Okay. Very quickly, hackers are using chat GPT phishing websites to infect users with malware. Uh, this is no different than anything that's trending that people search for in Google and that they go to websites and someone makes a site that looks realistic. In this case, making a site that looks like OpenAI is the company behind chat GPT. Just a warning that if you're looking for ChatTPT, make sure you go to openai.com and don't click a link and follow it if you get an email or see a link someplace else. Check to make sure the URL is correct. Right. And specifically, this malware that we know of so far has only been Windows and Android malware, but it's that's not to say that there couldn't be variations for the Mac or potentially even for iOS, too. There, there are attacks like this that could be used against you regardless of your platform. So just something to be aware of. Okay. Now, we talked a while ago about Google's whining about the green bubble and the blue bubble with iMessage and that they're unhappy. Microsoft came up with something which... It's kind of a halfway solution. They have an app called PhoneLink that lets you use iMessage on your Windows PC. It connects to your iPhone through Bluetooth, and it kind of acts like a, what would you call it, uh, a translator from iMessage to whatever the Windows messaging app is. There are some downsides to this. First of all, I don't see either green or blue bubbles in the screenshot here. Second of all, you can't use images. And third, you can't use group chats. So these are a lot of limitations just to be able to type your messages on your Windows computer instead of your iPhone? Right. Well, so we looked into this and, and from 
all the articles that are written about this, including on Microsoft's own official website, they never say that they've actually partnered with Apple or that they're, you know, officially using some sort of Apple you know, application programming interface or something like that. They don't say exactly how they're going about this. They might just be doing this completely on their own without Apple's blessing, which kind of makes sense with how kludgy this seems, because the things that you can do are you can send text-based messages through iMessage if your iPhone is linked up with your Windows 11 PC. What you can't do is you can't participate in group chats and you can't send photos or videos. And the implication there, I think also is that you probably can't see photos or videos. I'm not hundred percent sure about that, but you know, these are some awkward limitations. I don't know exactly how that works. And in practice, like if somebody sends you a, a picture or a video, does it notify you on your Windows PC that somebody did and that you're going to have to look at your iPhone to see it? It's not really clear. But in any case, it is kind of interesting. You know, iMessage is now kind of sort of available on Windows <laughs> as long as you've got your iPhone nearby and have it linked up with your Windows PC. Okay, we don't really talk about Android phones often, but I saw something that piqued my interest. Uh, There is a Nokia phone, the G22, that's coming out in a few days, and it is designed to be repaired in minutes. You can repair the screen, the battery, back panel, and the charging plug, I believe. And what you do is you go to iFixit and you buy a kit, which includes the part you need and the tools you need to make the repair. This is really inexpensive. It's going to go for 150 pounds in the UK. It's not going to be sold in the US. It's going to be sold in a number of global markets in Europe and other places. And it is very interesting, given what Apple does to do home repairs, you have to have like this 70 pound kit of tools to to take the screen off and all that. And here you can do it in, they say you can replace a battery in five minutes and a screen in about 20 minutes. I think this is a good way moving forward to make telephones a little bit more sustainable. Now, you know, Apple has a history over the past several years, we've, we've become less and less easily repairable, generally speaking, with Apple products. It, it's it's Apple's been trending that direction for a very long time. And we're really at the point now where your best bet, really, if you need to get any hardware repaired on an Apple device, is to take it to an Apple store. Or if you have no Apple store nearby, then either an authorized repair shop or getting one of these giant kits and doing it yourself, which of course has a lot of risks involved. And, you know, there's been, because there's so much competition in the Android market, this is one way that Android phone manufacturers can differentiate themselves. They can get a high repairability score from iFixit. You know, if, if that's one of the, the selling points that they wanted to, to make the case that you should get their phone instead of somebody else's. That's something they can use to differentiate themselves. And I think this is a brilliant move on Nokia's part. Also, the the price point is really great on the phone. Unfortunately, yeah, as you've mentioned, it's not available in the US. But th- this is a, a, a good way to go, especially if you're the kind of person who does tend to drop your phone a lot and might need to replace the screen. Being able to do that as cheaply and quickly as, as they're saying that you can do this with iFixit tools and parts, this seems like a great way to go for at least a certain percentage of people who are interested in using a repairable Android phone. 
It's worth noting that there's a 50 megapixel camera, which is more than what's in Apple's iPhone. You can put a micro SD card in to have up to two terabytes of storage, which would cost you, I don't know, 50 pounds or something for that compared to hundreds of pounds or hundreds of dollars to get more storage in an iPhone. It's waterproof. And so that's why you need a tool to take the back panel off. Now, Josh, who you were showing before the show, you have a 10-year-old Samsung phone where you just pop the back off and you can replace the battery. But of course, it's not waterproof. I think it's probably better to have waterproof. You get two years of Android upgrades and three years of security updates. And I think it's interesting that on Android, this is actually in the, the specs for a phone now. This is a selling point to say how long you're going to get upgrades. Whereas with Apple, you just assume it's going to be at least five years is going to be supported. Yeah. Uh, and I actually do like this, although the period of time Time, in, at least in this particular case, is, in my opinion, not very long for a phone. You know, there are there are a lot of people who buy a new phone every year or maybe every other year, depending on a lot of factors. Maybe they want to have the latest technology or maybe they don't care about it. Maybe they want to upgrade as soon as their carrier says they're eligible for an upgrade. But not everybody does that. And some people just want to hang on to the phone that they already are used to that works just fine for their needs and use that as long as they want. And well, you can't always do that with any phone because ultimately you're going to get to that point where you, if, at least if you want security updates, which you know, you should, then you're, you're probably going to have to upgrade your phone to a newer model at some point. But I do like at least that they're giving you the specifics on when security updates are going to be available until what date. By the way, the other thing is with Android devices, you can often get a third-party version of Android that is just as safe and secure, and it's designed to run on older hardware. Lineage OS is one that I think we've mentioned before on the podcast. That's what I've got installed on this 10-year-old Samsung phone that is almost useless, really, at this point. But Lineage OS and many others like it can be compatible with a lot of different hardware. So, so even if official stock Android doesn't work on your phone anymore, even if it's not supported, you can often still get a third party version of Android that's going to be fully up to date, give you all the security updates. So how does this relate to Apple? First of all, I, I know that a lot of Mac users also use an Android phone, so it's worth mentioning for that reason. But also, it's something that I think Apple could do better at, right? They can look at examples like this and say, you know, maybe we should be more environmentally friendly. Maybe we should be more repairable um, or at least have a model of our phone that ha is better in that regard. Also, Apple could definitely learn from this in, you know, announcing, pre-announcing before you buy a product when is going to be the last date that you're going to be able to get security updates for it. Apple has never done this with any product, to my knowledge. Please, if, if you know of any, correct me, podcast at intigo.com, send me an email. But I, I am not aware of any case where Apple has ever said we're going to release security updates until this date for this product. In fact, by the way, I've, I mention this all the time, but this really bugs me. Um, Apple Watch Series 3 is still being sold refurbished on Apple's website as of today. Yeah, it is. I, I checked check the other day. And it can only run watchOS 8, which has not had any security updates since watchOS 9 came out. So, you know, Apple really needs to improve in this regard. Okay, that's enough for this week. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. 
To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.